Connecting life and faith. This when is I go to conferences, scholars will say to me, "Do we need another theory?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, <laughs> yes, you need monster theory in your life." Um, <laughs> so, monster theory is relatively new, and it, it it didn't start in biblical studies. This is something that really I think started in medieval medieval studies, and um, a lot of people use it in English literature. But it, it really is about recognizing the importance of the monster. Dr. Heather Macomber is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Providence University College and Theological Seminary in Manitoba. She recently released a book where she discusses the monsters in the Bible. It's titled Recovering the Monstrous in Revelation. Today on Connections, she shares the inspiration behind this book and what she learned along the way. We're joined today by the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Providence University College and Theological Seminary in Manitoba. Her name is Dr. Heather Mackenberg. Uh, you have a really interesting new book out. I want to like get right into it, but usually we like to get to know our guests a little bit first. So I'll, <laughs> I'll slow down. I'll pull myself back. Um, you're a professor of biblical studies at Providence University College. I'm wondering a little bit about what got you interested in biblical studies, first of all, and choosing that as a career field? Sure. I started out, I mean, I, I guess in, when, you, when you're looking for your future career, there's not anyone who really helps you or tells you, at least when I was going through school. And I started doing history and loved research and kind of by accident find my, found myself in seminary. So I went to Tyndale Seminary in Toronto. <laughs> And it was partly because I didn't know what to do after my undergrad and my husband was going to be a pastor. And I remember just looking through the catalog and thinking, well, I could do this. This sounds interesting. So I found myself uh, at Tyndale studying and doing biblical studies and still not really knowing what I should do. And again, found myself applying for further work, kind of that professional <laughs> a lot about it is a real thing and and yes I've always been drawn to the Old Testament it was my favorite class uh, in seminary and just I think just because it's so complicated I just you know fascinated me and just kept following these kind of rabbit trails of research uh, until I ended up here Uh, yeah I don't know if everybody can relate to that wasn't quite sure what to do next thing you know I've got a PhD (laughs) (laughs) I One of my biggest regrets I have, uh, I did an undergrad in biblical theological studies, but it was like all New Testament pretty much. And I never spent a lot of time in the Old Testament studying it in that way. And uh, yeah, I really kick myself now. There's a lot of amazing stuff uh, in the Old Testament and great stories, aren't there? Yes. Well, I find, I mean, I teach a huge variety. So a lot of times I'll teach narrative, but I love teaching wisdom literature. And um, I mean, I wrote a book on Revelation, which is a New Testament. And sometimes I forget it's a New Testament book. I, I tend to treat it like a Jewish book or an Old Testament book. So I have to be reminded sometimes that Revelation is, in fact, a New Testament book. Why did you decide to write that book and tell us a little bit about the book? Uh, sure. Well, I had been working on angels in my doctoral work and had done a lot of work on different types of angels. And I was really interested in the ways that, especially in a book like Ezekiel and Zechariah, uh, that angels speak to humans, usually to help them interpret really strange visions and dreams. And I was very interested in the way that heaven and earth tend to intersect in these prophetic visions. And I ended up doing a little more work in it, getting into the book of Daniel, which 
the visions just, just get stranger and stranger as you get into these apocalyptic books. And I wrote an article on it and I was, I finally was introduced to something called monster theory. And that was a very roundabout way that I found out about it, but I realized how helpful this lens of looking at biblical text, but you can do it with any dis discipline, really like people do it with English and they do it in, um, I don't know, historical studies, uh, but looking at the monster, kind of centralizing the monster in the text. And so I worked on that in Daniel and then decided that, well, I had done Daniel and Revelation is quite similar. So why not, you know, apply this to Revelation? Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a bit naive on my part to jump into <laughs> totally different testament, uh, realizing halfway through that, yes, I did need to translate the Greek um, and I had to brush up on my skills. And so it was it was a bit ambitious, but it was it was it was fun. Now, see, this is what caught my eye right away. Monster theory. Like I have an MDiv. I've never heard of monster <laughs> theory before. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. You're not. You're not the only one. I have to, like, when I go to conferences, scholars will say to me, do we need another theory? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, you need monster theory in your life. Um, <laughs> so monster theory is relatively new, and it, it it didn't start in biblical studies. This is something that really, I think, started in medieval, medieval studies, and um, a lot of people use it in English literature, but it really is about recognizing the importance of the monster, and J.R.R. Tolkien actually has a whole essay on centralizing the monsters when he was translating uh, Beowulf, and he talks about the fact that monsters have been pushed to the edges of a lot of our texts, at least when he was doing his work, and he's calling for for a re-centralization of the monster. So he wasn't even doing monster theory, but it, there's a lot of parallels with what monster theorists do today. And so the idea is to understand what a monster is, how they behave, and why their actions are so important. And so the way that monster theorists describe monsters might be a little different than today's society. We don't necessarily see them as evil per se, um, but as other, as strange, and especially as boundary breakers. It's so interesting when I hear monster and I hear Bible, and then we're putting the two of them together. It's um, for some people, it's going to be hard to figure out <laughs> what that connection is. I think part of it is hard. I think a lot of us are used to seeing certain divine beings as monstrous. And, and when I say monstrous, we often think of them as bad or as evil. Uh, so people would be very quick to say, well, there's Leviathan in the Old Testament and there's Behemoth yeah. in the Old Testament, these like great big scary beasts. Like one is a sea monster, one is kind of like this land beast. And we often are very familiar even with the idea of the dragon uh, in the Old Testament uh, who fights against God usually in some kind of like sea battle uh, and you see that in a lot of the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, and then we're used to again the great red dragon and the beasts from Revelation so we can categorize and classify our beasts usually under the rubric of evil and opponent of God what we're less perhaps familiar with and even comfortable is the idea of divine beings who fight on the side of God as being monstrous. Mm -hmm. And so when I use that category, a lot of people, you know, are a little hesitant because monsters to them simply means something that's evil. But if you go back to like the ancient roots, especially the Greek roots, you find out that in Greek mythology, monsters could be good, they could be bad, they could be neutral. Uh, and a great example is someone like, Pe like a monster like Pegasus, right? We don't think of Pegasus, a winged horse, as being particularly evil. On the other hand, we might see 
you know, there's all sorts of these other um, monsters in Greek mythology, even like Cerberus, the guardian of, ha- of Hades, uh, that is, you know, scary. Um, but again, it's doing its job of guarding the underworld from people who are not supposed to go there in the first place. And so the idea of a monster, we need to nuance it uh, because it's attained a certain reputation in, in today's world that it never really had in the ancient world. So monsters can be evil, they can be good, and they can be just something in between. Uh, and so I try to take that lens when I look at all the monsters in scripture. So just not to assume right away uh, that we're dealing with something that is evil. So how does this theory help us understand our faith as Christians then? What I like to do is to start with, I guess, something like the living creatures uh, in Revelation, who are very much a pattern or or like, you know, very similar to what Ezekiel has in terms of the, like the Mm. cherubim. And a lot of times we're like, okay, obviously these are, these are good characters. They're in heaven. They're in the divine room of God. They're God's like protectors that surround the throne. You couldn't get a more divine or benevolent being than the living creatures. And yet when you look at them, they're truly monstrous. They, and Ezekiel have four faces uh, in, in Revelation. They, you know, they're either a lion or a human or an ox, um, but they also have wings. And in Revelation, they have eyes all over these wings. And I mean, that itself is a, a character of a monster. So one of the ways I look at monsters is to look at their biologies, how their bodies are formed, and we look at their hybridity. And hybridity is simply the mixing of different aspects of different animals or animal and human or even human and inanimate objects can be mixed together. And so we have these living creatures who are obviously a mixture of different types of animals. So already we have the crossing of boundaries. And that's another way to see what a monster is. It's something that doesn't fit human boundaries or human categories. It's something that is other. And in terms of faith, I think it's really helpful to get a better understanding of this because it really points to, I think, an aspect of faith that we miss out on a lot is that of awe and the idea that Mm. the otherness of these creatures leads us to a feeling of awe, which is, you know, part of worship. Um, And so the, the living creatures are there to either channel God's holiness to humanity or also to uh, protect um, humans from God's holiness. And so I do think that monster theory, uh, the surprising thing about for me is that it does lead to, I think, a better understanding of what holiness is and and how it can help us read these texts in that lens. I want to know how weird did your dreams get as you started working on this? (laughs) Did you start having weird dreams? I did not. No, I had no no angelic interpreter, which is, it's funny because I, I, I'm writing right now on the red dragon of revelation for another thing. And you would think I would have nightmares, but no. (laughs) What is the biggest thing that you learned while putting this together? I think it was simply to really question my, my biases as I read 
the biblical text. I mean, that's something I teach my students all the time, but again, being confronted again and again with things that I thought I knew about the text. And uh, I mean, one of them was the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, I link them very closely with the divine throne room. So a lot of times interpreters today are very confused by what to do with these, these entities because they come and they bring all sorts of judgments. Um, and a lot of times they're labeled as demonic by some scholars. Um, instead, I I think that label is not accurate. It's not in the text. And, uh, and so instead I see them as agents of the divine throne room. And, and that takes a lot of kind of rearranging your mind around because that's not the way I was taught this text. Um, but I see a really right. close linkage with the throne room and the actions of these uh, four horsemen. What about um, like, yeah, that's a great way to think about it and total reimagining or rethinking of revelation. What about, how you saw the imagery of Jesus in the book of Revelation then? Yes, that's definitely, I mean, so looking at Jesus and even God through a monstrous lens is extremely challenging. Uh, But Jesus is an interesting example because in chapters one, and then again in uh, chapter five, and again in 19, we have three different presentations of Jesus. And the first one, I mean, Jesus um, is not is is human-like and yet not human-like um he's kind of like like he's got like blazing eyes and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and he's pretty scary looking uh and yet it, it also is you can see john's reaction to him is one of is fear but it's also awe and it's also worship and and so i think that we need to take our cues from the text as well in terms of like how characters are reacting um when we get to chapter five and jesus is both a lion and a lamb uh, we see this interesting like metamorphosis or movement um, between different types of animals. Uh, but what a lot of scholars miss, I think, is that uh, they like to emphasize the lamb-like, I guess, posture of this uh, of Jesus in chapter five. But the lamb there is not an ordinary lamb. It has many horns, has many eyes. It's really strange looking, and it's still. Yeah is, I mean, able to open seals and is able to take a scroll. So even as it's a lamb and it's an animal, it's also acting as a human. So again, it's pointing to, again, the otherness of Jesus, which I think is a helpful corrective because a lot of times we emphasize the humanity of Jesus. Um, but I think Revelation is pointing us to this idea that Jesus is both human and God. And there's like, that, that mixture, that hybridity, uh, which I think Revelation is again pointing us to, which sometimes we, we miss in, in, today, in today's world. When talking about this and when releasing your book, what was the feedback from those who have had the opportunity to read about what you're writing about? I've been showing it, or I guess people have been experiencing in different contexts. So in the, in the kind of the academic world, it's, I've had a lot of positive feedback so far. People are really interested in monsters. Uh, They're having a moment, uh, which is, which is kind of nice. And so a lot of people are really interested in looking at monster theory. And um, I think revelation scholarship is, there's a lot of work being done in it right now. So that's been really um, exciting to be part of that conversation. Uh, I haven't had too much uh, reaction from people who are more in um, the evangelical world or like the the church world yet. So I think those those should be hopefully coming. Um, But I know that a lot of this material I practiced on my students first, and it's always been uh, fun to see their reactions and to see them struggling with material, but always 
the big thing for me is to get back to the text and see what the text is saying. It's really interesting. Like, I don't like in Christian culture, how we, we kind of take some of that in imagery from revelation, but we gloss over it. Like you mentioned the lamb having seven horns and seven eyes. But when we sing the song, uh, the lion and the lamb in church, or we have imagery of it, it's just a lamb and a lion next to each other, right? A normal lamb, not with seven horns and seven eyes. And, you know, we're, we're missing a big piece of that, that scripture then and, and what that imagery might stand for, I guess. Absolutely. And the other thing I found interesting, I'm also very fascinated by artwork and depictions of um, all of these divine beings and art. And they weren't scared of this. If you go back to even Albert Dürer's work, or if you go back to any of the medieval apocalypses, you will see Jesus represented as a really hybrid scary lamb. And they have no Mm. problem depicting that. And so you'll find, um, you won't find like the cuddly lamb. You're going to find a monster lamb. And and that would... They're just super familiar with it, but they'll also have um, going back to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You'll often have in the top corner, either the lamb or a living creature who is literally like directing the four riders on the way, really showing a connection between the activity of the riders and of the divine throne room. Um, The link is really clear to these medieval artists. Very interesting. I just, Google image search the lion and the lamb modern and it's all cuddly lamb and lion. Right. But if you do medieval, yeah, you're exactly right. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's Tell us I mean, part of our history. We, I think we've forgotten a lot of how other people before us perceived these books. Um, our, our history is really limited. Tell us about how we can uh, stay updated on your work and also how we can uh, find uh, the book and get a copy of it. Uh, sure. I'm, I'm on Twitter, so you can always find me on Twitter and uh, the book is being sold really wherever you can find books like Amazon or Indigo or a local independent bookstore um, or through the publisher as well. Lexington, Lexingham books, Fortress academic press. Are, are you uh, teaching any online monster theory courses that people anywhere in Canada could, could take part in by chance? Uh, I'm not teaching any that are online at the moment. Uh, I am teaching actually monsters in person uh, this winter. So it's uh, kind of part of my regular rotation to teach it at Providence. I might have to uh, take some time off work calling once or (laughs) twice a week. So (laughs) it sounds super interesting. (laughs) Thank you so much. Monsters in the Bible everywhere, not just Revelation. Love it. (laughs) Thank you so much for making time for us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. And thank you so much for joining us today. Remember, if you want to listen to this full conversation again or any of the other conversations we've had, you can do that by checking out our podcast, Connections with Mike, Tom, and Colleen Hood. You can find that at podcastville.ca or wherever else you get your favorite podcast from. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll talk to you again on Connections.